The state of higher education is tumultuous. Not a single week goes by without some story of political activism, unjust cancellation, campus protest, etc. hitting the news. Our universities really don't have to be like this. Rolston College aims to reshape this landscape. Alongside its MA in the humanities, Rolston is launching a summer school teaching Latin in Sicily, Rome and other sites. The program, running from July to September, offers immersive language learning with experts, literary reading, seminars and even archaeological visits. Most importantly, this course is designed for people who have never studied Latin. Anyone in the world can apply, and the strongest applicants will be awarded full scholarships that cover the cost of the entire program. Apply by the 31st of May at rolston.ac forward slash Latin dash program. Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantine Kissing. And this is the show for you if you're bored of watching people arguing on the internet over subjects they know nothing about. At Trigonometry, we don't pretend to be the experts, we ask the experts. Our amazing guest this week is the fantastic classical liberal journalist Toby Young. Welcome to Trigonometry. Thanks for having me on the show. And uh, I introduced you as a journalist. How did you first get into journalism? Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, well, I, um, I first started writing for um, newspapers and magazines when I was a student. Um, I was commended in the category of Young Journalist of the Year in, God, 1985. And, um, uh, and when I left university, I became um, a news trainee at The Times. And uh, that was my first kind of proper job in journalism. I actually lost that job after six months. And the reason for that was because every morning um, I would come in and try and log on to the in-house computer system as Charlie Wilson, then the editor-in-chief of the Times. <laughs> and how much access you had to the kind of in-house computer system depended on your status in the office hierarchy. And because I was a news trainee, I was at the bottom of the pecking order and really had access to nothing. So I would try and log in as the <laughs> editor in order to get access to everything. And I would try and guess his password for kind of five or ten minutes every morning. And after about <laughs> you know, five and a half months, I, I, I hit on the right one, which was top man. <laughs> and uh, the first thing, I had this very kind of supercilious boss um, uh, who had this kind of very languid air, long hair, lots of girlfriends, drove an open-top MG. Sounds like um, a legend. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, total legend. I, I hated him. Um, and, uh, and so the first thing I did when I was in, inside the editor's kind of, I think it was called a queue, when you sent someone a message, their name came out of me. So I, I immediately sent a message to this this, that my, my overlord saying, move your fucking car, it's in my space, the editor. And he kind of leapt up out of his chair as though he'd been kind of hit with a cattle prod and ran into the car park and moved his MG to another spot. And I thought, right, I can have some fun here. And I wreaked havoc for about a week. I found this memo detailing all the salaries of the most senior employees at the Times and circulated that kind of uh, to the entire office. And then immediately people started queuing up outside the editor's door to kind of demand more money because so-and-so was getting more than them. And they, anyway, um, and, uh, and then after, after about a week of this, um, uh, the kind of IT police tracked down the kind of miscreant who was kind of causing trouble. And I was, uh, I was told to um, uh, meet the um, managing editor for a kind of dressing down. And um, I went to the managing editor's office expecting, you know, a slap on the wrist, but to be secretly kind of admired for having kind of displayed my <laughs> hacking skills, you know, crucial skills for a modern journalist. And I was met by a security guard with a kind of see-through plastic bag containing the contents of my office drawer and escorted off the premises. So that was the end of my 
career as a news trainee at the Times. Um, I then went to Harvard for a year and thought I'd become an academic and embarked on a PhD at Cambridge, binned out of that after two years, started a magazine called The Modern Review with Julie Birchall and Cosmo Landisman, who were then my next-door neighbours in Islington. Um, the Modern Review was uh, kind of a magazine in which uh, intellectuals and academics wrote kind of long scholarly pieces about things like Madonna and Arnold Schwarzenegger. We called it um, <laughs> Low Culture for Highbrows. Uh, Judy Birch used to describe it as smash hits edited by F.R. Leavis, <laughs> which I guess makes me F.R. Leavis, which is kind of complimentary. Um, and we kept that going for uh, four years um, and produced it out of my kind of bedsit in Shepherd's Bush, and I thought, you know, I was Jan Wenner, kind of at the kind of dawn of the Rolling Stone kind of empire, and I was going to be this kind of, you know, billionaire in years to come with private jets, because this magazine was going to be kind of so incredibly successful. It folded in 1995 after Julie and I fell out. Um, she left Cosmo and ran off with an associate editor called Charlotte Raven, and it became a bit of a kind of news story at the time. Anyway, I shut down the magazine and at that point was recruited by Graydon Carter, then the editor of Vanity Fair, to go work for Vanity Fair. He initially said, you know, come out for a month, you know, let's get to know each other, it'll be fun. And a month turned into three months, three months turned into six months, and I was eventually, I was, I was at Vanity Fair for almost three years and in New York for five years. And I thought, again, you know, I was going to conquer New York, I was going to be the male Tina Brown, um, you know, here was the land of opportunity, it turned out it was, for me, the land of the unreturned phone call, and, uh, <laughs> and I crashed and burned spectacularly, and um, uh, returned to London in 2000 with my kind of tail between my legs, but wrote a book about my disastrous attempts to take Manhattan, uh, called How to Lose Friends and Alienate People, which was published in 2001, um, turned into a stage play in which I played my myself uh, in the West End for eight weeks, um, sometimes to full houses, sometimes not. Um, and uh, yeah, we comedians, we know all about, <laughs> you know about the that. variability yeah, yeah. of yeah, I know what it's like to play yeah. to an empty house yeah. on a Tuesday afternoon. Yeah. Um, or sometimes a full house, it feels empty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you tell a joke and it just dies. It's yeah. terrible, isn't it? It's like, uh, I, I used to get the, the flop sweat, you know, when it's like someone turns on the water works because no one's laughing at your gags. Anyway. Yeah, I call it sweaty back syndrome. Sweaty back syndrome, okay, so you don't worry about it. Um, uh, and uh, that book was, it, it became a bestseller, sold it around the world. Um, it was eventually turned into a film in which Simon Pegg played me, uh, which was released in 2008, also called How to Lose Friends and Alienate People. Wrote a sequel called The Sound of No Hands Clapping. Um, but started writing a column at The Spectator in 98, and I've been writing a column ever since. Also an associate editor at The Spectator. Um, got kind of uh, into doing more political stuff around about 2008, 2009, and have been kind of fairly political uh, since then. Um, wouldn't quite describe myself as an activist journalist, but probably on the cusp of being that. Um, and on the conservative side of things. On the conservative side of things, yeah. Mm. yeah. Um, so that's kind of, that's my journalistic career in a nutshell. And how did you get involved in education? Because that's also been a big part of your life. Yeah, well, um, it, it ran about um, 2008. Um, I, my wife and I um, started to look at local secondary schools. So we've got four kids, um, and we had the children in very quick succession at one point, worked out that my wife was 
pregnant uh, over a five-year period for more than 50% of the time. Excellent work. Which, uh, <laughs> which I wouldn't recommend. Um, uh, my wife is um, a lawyer who gave up practicing law to become a full-time mum when we had our first um, child, um, which I always say is the worst of all possible combinations because she contributes nothing to the household income but can always beat me in an argument. <laughs> um, I have to say she's gone back to work now, so if she was to hear me saying that, she would kill me. Yeah. So she now does contribute to the well, household income. You're only on uh, YouTube uh, for the rest <laughs> yeah, of the time. going to see it. Yeah. Um, and uh, anyway, so we had these four kids. They were all at this really good local primary school in Shepherd's Bush, but we were nervous about whether we we're going to go to secondary school. And there are some good, um, it's around here actually, there are some good um, Catholics, some good C of E secondary schools, but you have to be, you know, a church-going Catholic or Anglican in order to get into those schools. Uh, there were some other really good secular schools, but the catchment areas were tiny and practically had to live within the school gates to get into those schools. Yeah. And we sat down and thought, well, what are we going to do? We can either um, move, um, we can Get Religion, which round here is known as On Your Knees to Avoid the Fees. None of those options um, seemed... Uh, we could go private, you know, being a freelance journalist and having yeah. four kids. That wasn't really an option. Um, so uh, we initially decided to move. And um, my wife got all these details of houses in this village in Suffolk called Parham, um, which is near a really good comprehensive called called Thomas Mills and um, and the plan was to move to Parham in Suffolk 200 miles away I know about 100 miles away and uh, and send our kids to this 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 good local comprehensive but I thought you know why should we have to kind of uproot ourselves and move halfway across the country just to secure a decent state education for our children shouldn't that be you know, available more locally. Plus, you know, Parham happened to be where my parents-in-law lived. That wasn't a big factor. I'd get on with it fine. Um, but it was as though I was, you know, having to move back into the basement. It wasn't quite the basement, but almost the bottom of the garden yeah. of yeah. my parents-in-law just to secure, you know, a decent education for my children. I didn't really want to leave London. And, you know, I just felt angry about the fact that I was having to jump through all these hoops to mm. secure something which should be everyone's by right if you're a taxpayer and so forth. Anyway, uh, so I thought maybe there's another option, which is to set up our own school. And um, That's that, fascinating in itself because m most people's reactions <laughs> now to that situation would be to write a massive Facebook post about how yeah. the education system is broken and everything's terrible. Yeah. But you actually did this horrendous thing of trying to do something about it. Well, yeah, I think I think it was. Um, I agree, it's a slightly unusual reaction. Um, uh, uh, I think um, one of the things that gave me the confidence to think that was possible is that my father was involved in education. He came up with the original idea for the Open University, um, which is now the largest higher education institution in Europe, um, with you know something like a quarter of a million students uh, on roll at any one time. Um, I think that's right, anyway. Um, and. Uh, uh, so, I, you know, I thought, well, if he can start a university, the least I can do is start, you know, a small secondary school. Plus, at that time, Michael Gove was the shadow education secretary um, and was talking about making it possible for parents to set up free schools, which have been set up in America as charter schools and in Sweden and in other European countries. Um, so it looked at that point, too, as though the Tories were going to kind of romp home in 2010. Um, so it seemed, you know, it didn't seem completely beyond the realm of possibility. So I wrote this piece, not a Facebook post. It was a piece for The Observer in 2009 saying I wanted to start what I called a comprehensive grammar school. So a school which combined the best of both the grammar and the comprehensive tradition. So mixed ability intake, 
inclusive, but uniforms, houses, Latin grammar, Hogwarts meets Grange Hill. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, and, um, and I published it and I put an email address at the bottom saying, anyone want, want to help me, you know, email me. And I got about 150 people uh, emailing me saying they'd love to help, mainly local parents, worried about the same things as my wife and me. Um, and I invited them all to a meeting in my sitting room, not much bigger than this room here. Um, and about 50 people crowded into the room. This was in sort of, uh, I guess, September, October 2009. And out of that group emerged a group of about 12 people, almost all of whom were complete strangers to me until that meeting. And they became the steering committee um, uh, of the West London Free School, and you know, we embarked on this kind of mammoth undertaking, and it was at times kind of horrendously difficult. I remember um, when morale was at a particularly low ebb. I mean, we got nothing but the hand from Ed Balls whenever we tried to. He was then the uh, Secretary of State at DCSF, known as the Department for Chairs and Soft Furnishings. <laughs> anyway, but uh, he was the Education Secretary and was totally uninterested in a kind of parent-promoted academy, which was how we build it at the time. And I remember inviting this guy who led a parent group who'd successfully established a Jewish comprehensive, the Jewish Community Secondary School in Barnet, which was due to open in September 2010. So he'd effectively done what we were trying to do. It was a parent-promoted, voluntary-aided school. But it was about to open, you know, with the huge new buildings, and it, it was a huge success story. And uh, so I invited him to come and address my little group, my little merry band, to try and raise morale when it was at an all-time low. And the first thing he said was, it took my group 10 years. That's 10 years of your life. You'll never get back. I hope you realise that. And I was like, oh, Jesus. And so I said, yes, but, you know, had you realised at the beginning of that 10 years that after 10 years you'd have this kind of fantastic school embodying your vision, presumably you wouldn't have done anything any differently, would you? And he was like, are you kidding? My wife's almost left me. I'm practically bankrupt. My kid's too old to go to the bloody school. I never would have done it. But I know it would take 10 years. I was like, oh, no. Anyway, um, uh, we managed to recover from that kind of low point and um, uh, in 2011 in 2011 two years later um, it, it, we, we, we became the first um, group to sign a funding agreement with Michael Gove when he became the Secretary of State for Education so the first free school to get the green light and we were one of the first 24 to open in 2011 Boris Johnson opened the school this is when he was still on speaking terms with Michael Gove he made a kind of friendly gag he said yes the Secretary of State for Education has given a new word to the English language we give they get he Gove he Gove <laughs> anyway, I'm sorry about my Boris impression. Um, which actually isn't bad, is it? Anyway, um, uh, and, uh, uh, we, and we, 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 we've been told a lot of things by critics of the free schools policy. We've been told that um, teachers wouldn't want to work at a kind of parent-run school because it would be an insult to their professionalism. Actually, we had, you know, over 100 applicants for the head teacher position, which is, believe me, unheard of. Um, we were told that parents wouldn't want to send their children to the school. The analogy was, you know, if your kid burst his or her appendix, you wouldn't send him or her to a hospital run by patients. So why on earth would a parent entrust their precious child to a school run by parents? That wasn't really run by parents, it was run by professional teachers. Uh, but nonetheless, you know, we were massively oversubscribed. We were one of the, you know, 10 most oversubscribed mixed ability state schools in England. Um, uh, you know, everything people said would go wrong didn't go wrong. All the reasons people said it wouldn't work turned out to be kind of just false. And um, we got our first GCSE results, our first set of GCSE results, 
um, uh, in 2016, and they put us in the top 10% of mixed ability comprehensives in England. Uh, we've got our first kids graduating uh, from the sixth form this year. 83% of them have had university offers, 63% from Russell Group universities, and 40% of the kids at the school are from disadvantaged backgrounds. Um, that was another thing people said. They said that um, uh, the, only, the only parents who'd be interested in sending their children, that's what the critics said, to a school where Latin was mandatory for the first three years, which it is, uh, would be kind of local middle-class parents who couldn't afford or who wanted to save the money on private school fees. And actually, it's got a, an incredibly kind of mixed group of, of, of kids at the school. I mean, you know, it's about a third black, Asian minority, ethnic, about 40% um, from disadvantaged backgrounds. It's, you know, almost perfectly representative of the local area. It's just nonsense that, you know, only white middle-class people are interested in securing a kind of academically rigorous education for their children. I mean, it's just patronising nonsense. Anyway, it's been a, it's been a huge success, and um, subsequently the group that um, emerged from that meeting in my sitting room in 2009 went on to create um, three more schools, uh, three primaries, also local, also doing very well, and uh, we've just been approved to open um, a second secondary uh, in Cambridge in 2022. Um, so that's been, uh, you know, I've been... I thought that uh, you know enjoying some success as a as a journalist uh, would be kind of enriching and give my life meaning, um, and you know it was certainly kind of great to appear as myself in a one man show in the West End, and I co-produced a Hollywood movie based on the book. The book was a bestseller, but nothing was as enriching or as meaningful as setting up these schools and just getting involved with a group of almost complete strangers and kind of working collaboratively on this kind of project that we really thought would, would benefit the local community. And I think it has. I mean, originally I did it, you know, for selfish reasons, because I wanted a good school to send my kids to, and three of my kids are now at the school. Two are, and one's about to start in September, and the fourth will go next year. But it's become a kind of, you know, mission since then. I've become a kind of passionate advocate for the free schools program. And, you know, don't believe what the critics tell you about it. Um, last year, kids made more progress at free schools, uh, according to the new Progress 8 measure, than they did at any other type of school. They're massively oversubscribed. Um, they're um, more likely, secondary free schools, more likely to admit disadvantaged children than other schools, many much more likely to get um, outstanding Ofsted results. I mean, the program has been probably the most successful uh, education policy of the post-war period, I think. And do you agree with academies? Because there's a lot of teachers in particular, I don't particularly agree with the academy process. I don't believe that uh, corporate businesses should have any place in education. Would you ascribe to that, or do you think that academy, turning schools into in independent businesses is a positive thing? I think, people, I think people often misunderstand what academies are. I mean, free schools are a subset of academies. So free schools are legally academies. Um, academies are often described as kind of businesses, um, but you can't set up an academy um, unless you are a charity. So every academy, every multi-academy trust in England is a charity. Um, some of them make a surplus, um, but uh, not many do. Um, and um, I think, uh, you know, keeping corporates out of education is difficult. I mean, it's not just 
that hasn't that doesn't date back to when academies were first introduced. It long predates that. You know, um, the people who supply the toilet paper to the school, the people who supply the school dinners if they're externally provided, uh, the utility providers. These are all corporations, and it would be very difficult to run a successful public education service any more than it would be to run a public health service without the involvement of you know the private sector. So I don't think that in itself is an evil. The question is. Um, how well do these schools do? Um, and is the academization process beneficial or harmful? And um, I think that's an interesting debate, and I've just actually written a, 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 an essay about that for a forthcoming book being published by the Institute of Economic Affairs, which I think was recently stung in a Guardian thing um, <laughs> this morning or yesterday. Ridiculous. But, um, uh, uh, and I think it's a mixed picture. Um, but I don't think that, that um, yeah, schools run by local authorities fared any better. Um, uh, it may be that academization isn't a magic bullet, and for that reason we should pause before insisting that every school becomes an academy. But I think the program itself has room for improvement. It's perfectible in a way that um, local authority-run schools seem kind of less so. I mean, one of the things that I've always noticed when the difference between academy schools and locally run schools is the difference in budgets, where it appears that academy schools do get much more funding and local authority schools get less. And then you have Ofsted coming in going, oh, you know, this isn't working, this isn't working. It's like, well, we had half a million quid cut from our budget. Mm. What do you expect us to do? Yeah, I, I think there's, uh, uh, that again um, is a myth put out by the critics of the kind of whole panoply of education reforms uh, that date back to Andrew Adonis and Tony Blair, but which were kind of turbocharged by Michael Gove in 2010 and have been continued since. Um, academies and local authority schools um, get the same money. Um, their per-pupil funding um, doesn't vary according to whether they're an academy or a local authority school. Um, in some cases, local authorities the money is channeled via local authorities and they top slice it. And in most cases, the local authority top slice is larger than the top slice, say, that a multi-academy trust will take before then passing the money on to schools. And that, that in, in, in the, it, it, where that happens, then, of course, the schools get less money. Uh, but they can, you know, they, they supposedly get access to services provided by the local authority in return. So it swings and roundabouts. Um, but, you know, um, the West London Free School, for instance, the secondary school that I co-founded, um, we actually we actually saw a bigger cut in our per-pupil uh, real terms funding. It was a cut of um, uh, 2% um, if you compare 17-18 uh, uh, to 18-19 um, compared to some of the local authority schools which actually saw an increase in their funding. So, you know, it's certainly not true in Hammersmith and Fulham. Toby, well, let's move on to the next stage of your career because this success with the West London Free School and Education meant that you were then invited to advise the government as part of a panel or a board, I think it was called. Yeah. So I was invited, um, well, I applied um, to be on this new higher education regulator called the Office for Students um, uh, last year. And I had to go through a formal application process, so I had to submit a letter, I had to provide referees. I was then um, interviewed by um, Sir Michael Barber, the new chair of this regulator, as well as the vice chair and an independent civil servant observer. I mean, one of the criticisms made about the process um, uh, uh, by which I was appointed was that it wasn't above board, but actually I went through the same process as all the other 
appointees, one of the differences was that some of the student applicants to the board um, uh, had their uh, social media vetted, whereas my social media history wasn't vetted. But then the social media history of all the other appointees, save for the student applicants, wasn't vetted either. So I wasn't treated any differently um, to all the uh, sort of 13 or so other people appointed to this board and went through exactly the same appointments process. Um, uh, so, so you were appointed as, as, a, as part so of a group a, of 13 was, to advise the government actually, education? There were, actually, there were actually 15. 15. So it was a, a, I was one of 15 non-executive directors mm. appointed to this new higher education regulator. Um, and uh, the Department for Education announced the list of all the appointees on at around midnight on the 1st of January of this year. And within about... And, and, and The Guardian, um, uh, inter- they ran a story um, at one minute past midnight um, saying something like, Toby Young appointed to help lead new universities regulator, which was misleading because I wasn't going to be helping to lead in any sort of meaningful sense this regulator. I was one of 15 board members. You know, there were executives a chief executive, a deputy chief executive, and so forth, who would be leading it. And there was a chair of this board who would be leading it. Uh, But I was one of, you know, just 15 trustees. Anyway, um, that triggered a lot of people on Twitter um, who immediately um, kind of started objecting. I started trending shortly after midnight. um, And people then started... On the same day? On the same day, yeah. Wow. within, within, Within minutes. Within minutes. Of this Guardian story going live. Yeah. And and can I just ask, what, what was your emotions when you saw that it was trending? Because sometimes when things happen, and I go on social media and I see that I've been tagged in a post, there's a little bit of dread that enters my soul where I think, I wonder what this is. Did you have that or were you intrigued? Or No, I, I, you know, I suppose um, like you, I sort of uh, kind of think, why is this happening? And sort of... Uh, you have a kind of, you have a sort of slightly kind of uh, a slight feeling of dread in the pit of your stomach, and then and then I realised it was people reacting to this Guardian story, and for the most part coming up with kind of flimsy objections as to why I shouldn't sit on this board. I mean, the the most common objection was that I didn't have a background in higher education, um, which was an odd objection to make for someone who was being appointed to a regular a regulator. I mean, you don't want. Uh, a sector to be marking its own homework, or at least you don't want its homework to be entirely marked by people who are from that sector. I mean, you know, when 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 someone who works for, uh, who or who worked for Rupert Murdoch is appointed to um, uh, Ipso, um, the left throws up its arms in horror and talks about the industry marking its own homework. Um, and yet here I was, someone who wasn't involved in higher education, being appointed to a regular, and they were throwing up their arms in horror because I wasn't you know, a vice-chancellor of a university or a professor of some kind. Just to clarify for our worldwide audience, would you mind just explaining what Ipso is, please? So Ipso is um, the uh, new press regulator that was set up in the wake of the Leveson inquiry and which replaced the existing regulator. And it's been criticised mainly by people who would like to muzzle the tabloid press because it isn't state-authorised. It's not the state... Uh, um, authorised regulator that uh, Hacktoff wanted to see as a result of Leveson. Uh, It's an independent, a wholly independent regulator and it has some some people sit on it who have kind of worked in the industry and 
others haven't. Um, it's a mixture of people, as is the um, Office for Students. So it just seemed to me to be a ridiculous objection uh, to say I wasn't fit to serve on this regulatory body because I wasn't employed by the sector I was supposedly regulating. Anyway. Well, that, that wasn't the objection that got the most purchase. No, be, that was, the initial, that was yes. sort of the initial Not, wave of yeah. objections. And then, and then people started trawling through um, my Twitter feed, uh, everything I'd ever posted on Facebook, um, and going back through everything I'd written for The Spectator and elsewhere. Um, uh, Fraser Nelson, um, the editor of The Spectator, uh, wrote a piece uh, in my defence when this thing kind of mushroomed um, in which he pointed out that the top most searched for articles in the Spectator's archives dating back to 1828 were all articles by me as my detractors were kind of working hard to try and uncover things that they could then kind of pull out of context and stick on Twitter and say, how can you appoint this person to a kind of public body? Um, uh, a guy called um, uh, Freddie DeBoer um, wrote a really good um, blog post called Planet of the Cops in which he talked about what he called offence archaeologists, mm. people who kind of devote themselves, like literally hours, days of their lives, um, just to trawling through uh, all the things they can find about a particular uh, target so they can then find things to be outraged about um, or, or claim to be offended by. I mean, it's a kind of weird kind of uh, political moment in which people kind of can spend all this time trying to find things which they then claim are really upsetting and triggering mm. and offensive and undermining their mental health and yeah. sort of uh, destroying their sense of well-being. It's like, well, if things I've said are actually going to do that to you, why have you spent the last five days trawling through my Twitter feed in order to try and find things that are going to upset you? And if you really think they're upsetting and offensive and should be prohibited in some way, why are you trying to broadcast them far? Do you want to upset other people? Yeah. I mean, it's a kind of weird, kind of twisted well, logic. incredible. Of course, they're not really upset or offended. No. They're just pretending to be. No. Captain Renault style. Yeah, when, when Captain Renault discovers gambling is taking place at Rick's place in Casablanca, he's shocked, shocked to discover gambling's going on. And that's, that's the kind of shock we're talking about it's a kind of make-believe, uh, confected shock in this order to try and discredit a particular person. So what happened with Kandankula? Because the police, the, it was actually the police in that case. I, I don't know if you follow yeah, this case. Yeah, yeah. No one was offended by three million people watched the video on YouTube. No one complained about it. And then the, like someone made a complaint. And the police went around showing the clip to people to see if they were offended. And of course, eventually they found somebody who was offended. <laughs> um, and, and this seems to be the thing. So one why the, do you think you were targeted in this way, though? Well, one of the interesting, just, just, just yeah, to linger yeah. for a second on that particular example, yeah. um, that is an example of someone who is deemed to have said something inappropriate and offensive mm. being prosecuted, which I think is extremely sinister. Yeah. Um, but um, what's, what's, what's interesting and different about um, the big brother role played by these offence archaeologists is it's kind of, it, they don't, they're not state actors. Mm. Um, uh, they're just ordinary people. I mean, they're hashtag activists for the most part. Um, and they're kind of, uh, it's a sort of crowdsourced big brother. It's not big brother as presented in 1984. It's not uh, big brother with the imprimatur of the state uh, trying to shame people and and, and denude them of their livelihoods and kind of run them out of town, as it were, on a rail, tar and feather them with the authority of the state. It's just ordinary people 
hashtag activist kind of assembling in order to kind of recreate this kind of oppressive big brother figure. And uh, for that reason, I think in some ways that, that is a source of hope because um, if everyone stands up to them, um, then I think their power would be much reduced. But unfortunately, because that's not happening, uh, corporations, large bureaucracies, governing political parties are just doing their bidding. So even though they're not state actors, it's just a kind of crowd assembling, an outrage mob assembling on Twitter and on social media. Nonetheless, they have, they can, they, they have, they have this extraordinary power because various state bodies, various organs and instruments of the state start acting um, uh, start doing their bidding. Um, but I think uh, the Count Duncula case is, is, is extremely sinister because that's an example of, of the police trying to almost second-guess what an outrage mob is likely to ask them to do should it spring up, even though in this case, as you say, it hadn't actually sprung up. So coming back to you then, you had these people trawling through your Twitter posts and Facebook posts. What did they find? They found, um, yeah, they found a number of... Um, uh, uh, articles and tweets I'd written, which in their view made me unsuitable to serve on this public regulator. So, for instance, um, uh, a piece I'd written, an essay I'd written on leaving university in 1988, so 30 years ago, <laughs> um, was uh, in which I talked about how uh, the English class system operated at Oxford and made some sort of faintly disparaging remarks. That was disparaging kind of description, rude descriptions of socially awkward boys. Um, and uh, that was taken to uh, be indicative of my um, contempt for working class boys who tried to make good through education. Paul Mason pulled this out as evidence that I was a totally unsuitable person to serve on this record. And he said that the reason the Tories had appointed me to this regulatory body was in order to stop working-class children going to university. That, that was my role. I mean, literally, I don't know whether he believes this or not, but this is what he actually said in a tweet. For, for those who don't know, Paul Mason is a former BBC and Channel 4 journalist turned kind of freelance Corbynista activist. Um, and, uh, and you kind of think, one, you know, first of all, you've totally misinterpreted this piece. Uh, secondly, it was written 30 years ago. You know, even if I had said the things you're claiming I said in that article, what about all the work I've done since? You know, at Oxford, I was involved in um, uh, a widening participation program to encourage children from disadvantaged areas to apply to the university and went and talked to six forms, you know, around the country to try and persuade children who hadn't considered Oxford to apply to Oxford. Um, I've been at that stage a member of the Fulbright, the UK-US Fulbright Commission, and we have this program in partnership with the Sutton Trust whereby we secure full scholarships for English kids from disadvantaged backgrounds to attend US colleges. I'd set up, you know, four schools at the primary schools. We give priority to children from disadvantaged backgrounds. When they apply at the secondary school, 40% of the kids are from disadvantaged backgrounds. I mean, what's Paul Mason ever done to help kids from disadvantaged backgrounds get to university. I mean, sweet fuck all, I imagine. Uh, and I, you know, but here he was judging me on the basis of an essay he'd misunderstood, written 30 years ago, and saying that is the reason Toby Young shouldn't be appointed to this, to this particular regulatory body. And that was kind of typical of, I think, the way in which outrage mobs on Twitter work. 
Um, they pull out particular things you've written. I mean, I said some stupid things about uh, women's breasts, you know, after several glasses of wine at sort of four o'clock in the morning, nine, ten years ago. Um, and those were pulled out as evidence that I was a misogynist opposed to women going to university. And, you know, often these, these tweets were reproduced uh, with the hashtag MeToo, as though tweeting about boobs at four o'clock in the morning is identical, morally indistinguishable from, you know, Harvey Wein- what Harvey Weinstein's been accused of doing, which, you know, I think is the, it's the, it's the, it's the feminist equivalent of playing the race card. You know, don't expect people to become outraged every time you use the Me Too hashtag if you're going to use it to describe, you know, locker room banter and not kind of rape and sexual harassment and unpleasant predatory behaviour in the workplace. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I've never been accused of sexual harassment. I've, um, I've run several medium-sized organisations. Uh, I've never been accused of sexual discrimination, never been taken to a tribunal, uh, nothing, nothing, anything like that. Um, but because I, you know, I, I sent some unfortunate tweets, um, that made me a misogynist in the eyes of my critics and therefore a totally unsuitable person to be appointed to this body. What's it like emotionally when you see, slowly but surely, this picture being constructed of you, of who you are, which actually bears very little resemblance to the truth, but then you see more and more people just look at it and go, well, he's obviously that person. Yeah. And, I mean, I would find that soul-destroying because it just reminds me of you know, the, the play The Crucible where John Proctor mm. goes, that's my name, that's the only yeah. thing that I have. It is. It is. That is. That is one of the worst things about it. This feeling that you know your name is being dragged through the mud. People are saying these terrible things about you and attributing these terrible beliefs to you. Uh, there's this awful sense that people who don't know you, um, even even people who uh, know you a little bit, um, might see these things and believe they're true. Um, and that is, uh, that's an awful feeling. So the, probably the low point was watching Question Time. And, um, uh, it's a massive current affairs program in, in the UK. We yeah, have like a very the, international the UK's leading, yeah. leading current yeah. affairs, flagship current affairs program, yeah. um, in which a panel of people discuss kind of a, a number of kind of buzzy kind of topics of the day. Yeah. Um, so Dawn uh, Butler... Um, Labour's shadow minister for women and equalities said on Question Time um, that um, I was a eugenicist who talked about weeding out disabled people. I mean, it was just—I mean, it's, it was just complete nonsense uh, constructed out of whole cloth. And you know, I've got a disabled brother. Um, I'm a patron of the care home he lives in, and the thought that he or any of his carers or any of his friends. Uh, at, at, you know, at, at, in that community, might be watching Question Time and thinking, "Crumbs, didn't know that about Toby. Didn't know that about my brother. He wants to weed me out." Mm. You know, it, this is a serious person saying this on 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 this mm. flagship current affairs program. A senior politician mm. must be true. Yeah. You know, that that was that was terrible. And I, I think w- w- what was w- one of the one of the salutary things about that experience. There was also another moment when there was a House of Commons debate again. There were, the, the Speaker of the House of Commons, John Burko, in his wisdom, described, decided to um, uh, grant an emergency debate, an urgent question about my appointment to this body. And, that, that, and, the, and the kind of Labour 
objections were led by uh, Dawn Butler again. And just everything that came out of her mouth was wrong. I mean, it was often kind of garbled stories from how to lose friends and alienate people. And again, if, if you write a kind of self-deprecating memoir in which you tell all these terrible, embarrassing stories about yourself, um, then I suppose, you know, if you do then get appointed to a public body, it's inevitable that someone is going to trawl through that book and try and... F- and the way they present it, it's as though they, through their sleuthing, you know, through their kind of powers as kind of forensic investigators, they've discovered <laughs> these kind of terrible, terrible things about it. No, I wrote them all about myself in a self-deprecating memoir. But Kingsley Amis, the British author, once wrote that, you know, uh, be careful when you make a self-deprecating remark about yourself because some little shit is bound to dig it up at some point in the future and hurl it against you. Because um, you wrote an article about pornography and yeah. and that was used against you as well, wasn't it, in order to slander uh, and... Didn't... It was just... It was sort of, it, that, that, uh, there were moments during this kind of whole furore which were comic and that was one of them. So I wrote a piece um, uh, in 2001 for The Spectator um, disputing that the liberalisation of the attitude of the British Board of Film Classification to pornography, whereby they were allowing more things to get through, uh, wasn't going to result in a kind of epidemic of sexual violence. And the literature linking exposure to sexual imagery, including pornography, to sexual violence um, was, you know, the evidence was incredibly threadbare. Uh, most of the evidence is that there isn't any link at all. Actually, most of the evidence is on the contrary. I mean, Diana Fleischman, exactly. who, whose episode of ours you've seen, she wrote an article, and one of the points she makes in there, the increased use of pornography reduces, reduces. sexual violence Exactly, and, and you, you, can, you, can, you can see that at a very crude level. If you compare societies in which um, there's a very liberal attitude towards mm. pornography, like um, Sweden, Denmark, Holland, to countries in which there's a very censorious, draconian uh, attitude towards pornography, like Saudi Arabia, uh, the incidence of sexual violence is much, much higher yeah. in those countries, which have a much more draconian attitude. I made this point in this article, and I, I in the in the course of making this argument, I like the of, misogynist that you are, totally. like, like, this, <laughs> like the, I, 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 I described Philip Larkin, uh, the British poet, um, generally regarded as you know probably the best British poet of the post-war period, was offered the poet laureateship, turned it down. Um, came up with the line all that remains of us is love as well as the famous poem about your parents fucking you up <laughs> um, uh, anyway he, he, he was once loitering outside a Soho sex shop um, too embarrassed to go in and the owner came out and said was it bondage sir? <laughs> as a matter of fact it was and, uh, and I relayed this anecdote which he told to Kingsley Amis in a letter yeah. to Kingsley yeah. Amis and I described him in the course of relaying this anecdote as a fellow porn addict mm not meaning that he was a porn addict or that I'm a porn addict. It was a kind of self-deprecating remark, not intended to be taken at face value. But someone, you know, one of these offence archaeologists, mm. kind of found this piece, that, and the, the sub at the uh, spectator had put the headline at the top of the piece, Confessions of a Porn Addict. So he reproduced this piece on Twitter. Literally minutes later, it, 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 it appeared in the Evening Standard. Headline, you know, New pressure mounts on Theresa May as university czar confesses to being porn addict, quote unquote. You know. <laughs> and, and that was reproduced in the Times the next day. I mean, one of the one of the kind of eye-opening things about this whole experience was realizing the extent to which the mainstream media now just takes its cue from social media mm. without doing any kind of checking. There's no that you'd expect higher standards to be shown by journalists 
for the Evening Standard and the Times than by, you know, an amateur offence archaeologist on Twitter. But no, they produce something embarrassing about you and it's just immediately reproduced as though, ah, you know, they've discovered that this guy's a porn addict. That'll embarrass the PM, you know, because the Prime Minister had mm. effectively appointed me to this, this regulatory body. Anyway, so that was just kind of ridiculous. But one thing I was going to say in response to your point is what was it like to, um, to see people dragging your name through the mud and this kind of horrible feeling of powerlessness uh, that you can't do anything about it. Um, you know, you can, you can object, but you're not a great witness in your own defence. People don't, don't, don't take that particularly seriously. You hope other people will kind of leap to your defence, and some people did, but not that many do in these situations because people are frightened of these Twitter mobs, understandably. Mm. Um, and uh, for me, I, I did think at the time, this must be what it's like for um, you know, people not involved in the media, people who don't have any power or influence or money, to see their names introduced in the media. That feeling of powerlessness must be what it's like for ordinary people when a story appears about them, uh, which is completely wrong. And they don't feel they can kind of they have any redress. They can't well they can complain to Ipso, and uh, I didn't in the end complain to Ipso. I did complain to the Guardian's ombudsman, um, and that was a total waste of time. So all of this happens. Your name is dragged through the mud. You're eventually forced to. Well, you you you, you were forced to, or did you choose to apologise and, and resign from I, this point? I I I decided after nine days of mounting pressure. Um, uh, to resign um, and apologise. Um, and, you know, it was becoming an untenable situation. Um, a petition had been got up with something like 225,000 signatures uh, on change.org demanding I be sacked. Well, people who <laughs> thoroughly investigated <laughs> every article and yeah. checked every tweet Forensic and made up their own mind. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and... Um, uh, uh, there was a kind of mob of reporters outside my house waiting to kind of ambush me, yeah. you know, whenever I left or came home. My 14-year-old daughter was kind of refusing to leave the house. Um, my wife said that if another person came up to her at the school gate and said, you know, uh, are you OK? She was going to hit them, you know. Um, uh, and uh, What were they uh, saying to what, the other, the other Sorry, Tommy, let me, let me just yeah. interrupt you there very quickly. With your wife, were they commiserating with you as a family or were they saying to her are you okay coexisting with this evil misogynist eugenicist no i think they were saying are you uh, how how are you coping right. with this kind of onslaught okay. of um of abuse of your husband right. and i don't okay. think they were saying how, how are you all right as in um is it, you know are you all right living with this kind of right. vile misogynist yeah. uh, no i think okay. i think they were just, but you know when people are, i mean I wasn't there. I don't know what, what their attitude mm. was when they were saying it. But generally, when people kind of express pity mm. and concern, it's always kind of tinged with a kind of little bit of glee. Just yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A bit of schadenfreude. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, um, uh, the other difficulty was that um, uh, the, uh, the other members of the board were, at this point, threatening to resign if I didn't resign. Okay. Um, and that was putting Sir Michael Barber in a very difficult position. He didn't want to have to kind of choose between siding with me or siding with these other members of the board. And it was kind of casting a kind of huge uh, pall over the launch of this new regulator, um, uh, which I think has an important role to play. Mm. You know, 
one of its one of its jobs is going to be protecting free speech on British campuses. Um, another is going to be trying to stop kind of runaway salaries for wildly overpaid vice chancellors. Trying to do something about the grade inflation at universities. So it's got lots of important things to do, and you know I believe in its mission. Um, and so I realised I wasn't helping it any by kind of clinging on and this story kind of continuing to dominate the news. Um, so I resigned, and uh, I'd been advised by um, by some people that if you resign and apologise, then you know don't expect don't expect the outrage mob to then disperse and go. Oh, okay, he's apologised. Let's move on, find another victim. Um, uh, it just emboldens them even further. So if you, if, if you resign and apologise, they'll just come after you and demand you step down from all your other jobs. They'll come after Fraser Nelson at The Spectator. They'll see it as an admission, a blanket admission of guilt. Mm. Everything you've accused me of, I'm guilty mm. of. I am this terrible person. You are right. Mm. Um, and that, that is actually more or less exactly what happened. Um, so the moment I stepped down from the Office of Students and apologised... Um, their various um, various uh, leaders of teaching unions demanded that I step down from uh, the free schools charity I was running, demanded that I step down from any involvement with the schools I'd set up. Um, the Fulbright Commission came under pressure. Someone got a kind of page up on Facebook claiming to be a page representing other Fulbright scholars wanting my scalp. So I had to step down from the Fulbright Commission. Um, I was an honorary fellow of Buckingham University, and uh, I, I got an email from Buckingham University telling me that uh, actually uh, uh, I, I'd misunderstood um, and that my honorary fellowship, which was granted in something like 2011, was only for three years. So it had expired in 2014, so I could no longer call myself. And i like, hang on a second, I spoke at this Festival of Education at at Buckingham University last year, and you billed me in the programme as an honorary fellow. So this is news to me. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so that was their kind of sneaky, so they went sneaky, way, sneaky way of stripping me of that particular yeah. honour. And eventually I did have to stand down from the free schools charity I was running, and I had to stand down from the board of trustees um, of the charity that the four schools I'd helped set up sat within. So in total I, I, was, I, I lost four, no, five positions as a result of this kind of uh, outrage. Let me ask you this one final thing. Sorry, Francis, yeah. uh, on this uh, from my side. I know it might seem like an insensitive question from someone like me who hasn't been through it, but I always wonder when I see somebody being smeared in this way, the, the previous comments being misused by people in many cases who are no better than the person that they're talking about. If you go through their Twitter feed, you'll mm -hmm. find exactly the same thing. I mean, I can see why you resigned in the sense that it was sabotaging the work of the board to which you'd been appointed and it was going to be. But in terms of your apology, why does no one ever stand up to these people and say, you bunch of sanctimonious, hypocritical cunts, why don't you go and look at your own behavior? We're all flawed. We're, we're mm -hmm. all human. Mm -hmm. None of us never make mistakes. We're all like this. Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to apologize for being human. I'm doing my best. Here's the work that I've been doing. I'm not going to apologise. Why does nobody ever do that? Um, Why does you do that? I think sometimes people do do that, and that can sometimes be a better strategy mm. than apologising. Um, I, I, felt, I felt the need to apologise partly because 
you know, I did feel contrite about some of the things I'd said mm. on Twitter. Um, you know, there were there were there were some things that that when they were reproduced, one was reproduced on the front page of the Mail on Sunday. Some stupid gag I'd made about um, uh, starving children um, in Africa during a kind of red nosed day English teleton broadcast. Um, and you know, when 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 that when that tweet was reproduced on the front page of the Mail on Sunday, you know, my first thought was. Thank God, my dad's not still alive, you know, because this is so shaming. Mm. Um, and uh, yes, yeah, so there were certain things I had said um, that I did regret saying, um, and so I thought I ought to apologise for saying them. Um, but I also hoped that if I, if I, if I stepped down and apologised, I naively thought that that would draw a line under mm. it, and I could continue my work with the schools I've set up and the work I was doing helping other people set up free schools. Um, that turned out to be, you know, a mistake. Um, but uh, that was the sort of that was my reasoning at the time. The reason I ask is like I, I understand that you were uh, contrite about some of the things that you said. But you know, the two of us are comedians. The number of times we've gone on stage and we've tried to make a joke about something. And it just hasn't worked, or it's offended someone. Speak for yourself, mate. <laughs> you were just telling me about last night, mate. Don't don't do this. The number of times that you try to do something doesn't quite work, or you say something mm-hmm. that's out of place, or whatever. It's a normal part of human existence to make mistakes. Mm-hmm. Why does your having said something that you regret mm-hmm. mean that you now have to be treated as this pariah? That's something I don't understand. Well, I think I think that's. Um... I mean, I agree with that. Mm-hmm. I think it's. Uh, I think that um, you know, people should be judged in the round. Right. You should judge people according to the totality of their behaviour, mm-hmm. and not judge them according to the worst things they've done. Um, it's like defining people by their worst moments, taking, taking, taking a lapse of judgment, um, in which they've you know made a gag which didn't work and which could be construed as offensive to some people, um, taking that as the defining moment in someone's life, which then uh, completely um, eclipses everything else they've done. So you could be someone who'd worked with kind of handicapped children your entire life. You could have a handicapped younger brother whom you've supported selflessly your entire life. Um, But if you make one joke um, about handicapped children... Uh, suddenly you are a kind of uh, uh, a terrible person and all the work you've done, everything else you've done is completely disregarded. I mean, one of the, one of the, the points I made in my piece about all this for Quillette that was published last week is that we've reached a, this kind of strange point in our society whereby virtue signalling is considered more important, trumps actually being virtuous. So not breaching speech codes... Um, which restrict what you can say about disadvantaged groups is actually considered more important than helping disadvantaged groups. So the fact that I've you know done all this work to help disadvantaged kids dating back you know 30, 35 years um, uh, uh, is less important when it comes to judging my character and whether I'm a fit and proper person to serve on a public regulator than one thing I said about... Um, uh, disadvantaged kids in a piece in a spectator 20 years ago. Do you think that this urge and this desire and this lust to publicly shame people comes is inherent in our character? And if you look at the medieval times, things like the stocks, 
I, I think, where do you think this comes from? Why do you think some people get so much of a vicarious pleasure and, and just, I, I don't even, gratitude, I think, is a word, to see someone publicly shamed lose their career when you actually know deep down that you are making a serious impact on someone's mental health and not only on their mental health, but the mental health of the people around them? I think, um, I think... Uh, I think, it, and I've, I've thought about this, um, and I think it's. Uh, I think it must have something to do with the disgust instinct. Um, it's the same root uh, as racism. Um, uh, so I think uh, a particular group, in order to um, uh, 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 solidify um, its sense of cohesiveness, mm. in order to create a sense of belonging and community and common purpose. Uh, sometimes um, vilifies certain individuals who are, in its view, members of an outgroup. Mm. Um, and that dates back to, I think, uh, what they're appealing to is the kind of human disgust instinct. Uh, this sense if something's bad for you, if it's going to contaminate uh, you in some way, then you automatically kind of push it out and you want to destroy it. And you also think anyone else who comes into contact with it is going to be similarly contaminated and they have to be kind of cast out as well. I think it's to do with that. I think it's, to, and, uh, it, it, you know, down the ages, as you've said, uh, in-groups have always um, uh, tried to dehumanise and other out-groups, uh, and in some cases, individuals who are emblematic of those out-groups, just in order to create a sense of identity and community uh, within the in-group. And that's probably more likely to happen when societies are in a state of flux and when there's a lot of uncertainty and when the identity, when the values of the in-group are becoming kind of vaguer and more amorphous and less defined, a quick way of affirming uh, a sense of identity and common purpose is to find some individual who they can all collectively express their disgust for and their contempt for. And you know, some people say to me, do you think if people realised what it was like, what it's like for people who find themselves being targeted by these twitch fork mobs, do you think if people realise that there is a human being kind of twisting on the end of that pitchfork and that they are suffering, that their families are suffering... Um, and that there's been no due process here, effectively lynching someone. Um, uh, do you think if they realised, you know, if you, if, if, if you made them pause and you actually explained uh, the various shortcomings of the process which has led to this point and the impact it's having on the individual, uh, that they would reconsider? I don't think they would. I, don't I think, think it's would. a kind of bloodlust. Mm. Yeah. And if they find out that you're suffering, then, you know, that just kind of, that just kind of makes them... Yeah, they're, they're even more crazy and frenzied in their desire to destroy you, like a kind of pack of wolves. And do you think the fact that you're a white, middle-class male who went to Oxford, do you think that made you even more fair game? Yes. I mean, I think, I think um, uh, left-wing politics has taken an identitarian turn. Uh, I mean, I think identity politics isn't new. It's been around, you know, since at least the 1960s. Um, but it's generally been associated with the hard, regressive left... And that has been kept at bay within most left-wing movements, left-wing political parties. I think since the triumph of Brexit and Trump, um, uh, the regressive left identitarians have seen their influence within the left increase dramatically. Um, partly because um, it's as though their claims that capitalism inexorably leads to 
fascism uh, and that periods of economic uncertainty produce kind of dangerous right-wing populist movements. It looks as though their analysis uh, has some purchase. I mean, I think they're wrong about that, and I don't think that is what's going on. But you can see if you're a kind of soft leftist, you suddenly see these things happening. It looks as though these profits to the left of you are actually onto something. And also, I think they feel that with the apparent political surge, uh, resurgence of um, of right-wing populist leaders and causes across Europe and across the West, that they need to kind of stick together so they no longer need to it's no longer appropriate to keep the hard, regressive left at bay. They have to make common cause, at least until these kind of demons have been defeated. So I think for various reasons, identitarianism is on the march. Um, and you, know, you see it in universities, you see it amongst public intellectuals, you see it in public bureaucracies, um, in large corporations. They all seem to be suddenly dancing to the identitarian tune. And if you are a kind of apex predator in the identitarian food chain, you know, if, if, if you're a white, heteronormative male from a privileged background, worse, if you're a Tory, a Brexit-supporting Tory with all those characteristics, then they just assume that you must have all these kind of terrible, toxic beliefs. You must be a misogynist. You must be a racist. You must be a homophobe, uh, because that's how you justify your privilege. It doesn't occur to them you know, that there could be a kind of perfectly reasonable intellectual case for free market capitalism. Uh, they just assume that anyone defending capitalism, uh, uh, if they're a white heteronormative male, it must be because they're trying to defend their privilege and that they therefore subscribe to these kind of toxic beliefs which exclude other people uh, from power uh, and preserve the structural inequality which is kind of uh, killing people who are minorities and so forth and people of colour and women and so on and so forth. Um, so I think they were very willing to believe that because I had, because I ticked all these kind of uh, uh, demographic boxes that I held all these toxic beliefs. So then they set out to find evidence that I did indeed hold these beliefs and, you know, didn't take them long to find it. And I think as well, one thing, when reading your article and going into a bit of research about your case, and what I've noticed as well is it does seem, which I find really interesting actually, because my mother's left in Latin American and uh, I've got a whole side of my family who are not white and all the rest of it, and I just, this is entirely from my dad's side from County Leitrim, but there we go. But one thing I've noticed with people is they'll go, oh, right, yeah, but he's just a white male, therefore, mm -hmm. you know, it doesn't matter because he's not oppressed, and therefore anything that I am doing to him, no matter how unreasonable, is just a way of me redressing the balance. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that's how they justify their arguments. Would you agree with that? I think, I think that, is, that is in some cases how they justify their arguments, yes. Um, but it's, it, 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 it's, I think, a, a, it, it's a way of licensing themselves um, to be unthinkingly cruel and dismissive and contemptuous of people who they think of as being members of out-groups. Uh, they think, you know, for years, um, people of colour, minorities, non-cisgendered people have been oppressed uh, and therefore, we're perfectly entitled to mete out that treatment uh, to people uh, who don't fall into those categories. But it's a kind of, isn't it a kind of, it's, it's the same kind of um, category error as racism, to think that because uh, white men uh, were slavers in the 18th century, 
um, that therefore every white male is in some measure responsible for enslaving people. Because Harvey Weinstein, um, uh, uh, in all likelihood, we don't know for sure, the trial is continuing, yeah. uh, 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 raped someone, therefore all white men are rapists. I mean, it's, it, it, it's exactly the equivalent um, error as thinking that because a person of colour commits a crime, that therefore all people of colour are criminals. Um, and you would hope that rather than just reproducing uh, this category error and applying and just and just kind of uh, uh, reversing it, as it were, and applying it to another group of people, they would say actually that's a category error and it's wrong to judge people according to the colour of their skin or their gender or their sexual orientation or whether they're cis or non-cis. Uh, but they seem to have gone from, you know, saying that that's wrong, which I don't think anyone, you know, would dispute whether a classical liberal or a Marxist, to saying ah, it's not wrong to judge people on the basis of the colour of their skin or their sexual orientation. We've just been judging the wrong people badly. We're just going to flip it. So mm. now, if you're a white, heteronormative male, you're a bad person. But if you're a person of colour and you're non-cisgendered uh, and you're a woman, then you're a good person. Uh, which is just, it just seems completely incomprehensible. I mean, it's a very, very good point you make. How much of the blame would you ascribe to social media and Facebook in particular, the fact that, you know, that people now who scream the loudest, who make accusations, they seem to be the most dominant voices. Like you, I consider myself on the left, but I look at these certain extreme members of the left and I think you, you, don't, you, you don't represent me in any shape or form, but somehow you are now seen to be the voice of the left in inverted commas. Mm. And it's again with the right, you know, you see Katie Hopkins getting wheeled out and I've got lots of friends who are conservatives and they're horrified by mm. her and, and her rhetoric. Yeah, I think, it, I think it's, uh, I mean, I think social media undoubtedly has played a part in coarsening uh, political debate, lowering the standard of political discourse, making ad hominem attacks much more prevalent and much more effective. Um, I don't think that it's wholly responsible. I mean, I think those, those things are, have always been there. Um, some of the kind of, you know, those sorts of impulses. And even in different political periods, you've seen kind of, you know, I mean, you know, there was a lot of fake news. There's been, there's been fake news in US presidential elections dating back to, you know, the dawn of the republic. Um, but it does seem to have, it does seem to have escalated and uh, uh, got a lot worse um, since the sort of social media um, uh, moment. Um, and uh, it'll be interesting to see if we can do anything about that. Uh, I mean, I think this is an interesting example, isn't it? I mean, it's um, uh, uh, instead of trying to um, uh, carve out a voice for yourselves uh, within the mainstream media, though you may be doing that as well, um, you've effectively created a different platform for yourself, in part because you don't think anymore, you don't have, any, you don't have the confidence that ideas will be debated and taken seriously and we can have a proper, grown-up, mature, well-informed conversation on mainstream media anymore. Mainstream media has effectively been corrupted by social media and it's kind of sensationalist and as clickbaity now as social media. So to create a space to have a much more grown-up, well-informed conversation in which you can seriously consider different ideas and get to the bottom of things, you have to do it outside the mainstream media and create a space for yourself to do it. I think one, one source of hope is, in the same way that you know, the internet has 
had a net negative impact on the level of political debate here, America, elsewhere. So it's also created space for programs like this mm-hmm. and for people like Dave Rubin and Jordan Peterson and uh, you know, t- to actually have proper grown-up um, quite long conversations about what what really matters, uh, and even and, and, and one of the reasons I think that you know platforms like this are important and gaining traction um, is because people are fed up with that kind of uh, petty name calling, shaming, just that kind of you know the the dominance of that kind of woke mindset that kind of permeates social media and now the mainstream media. Well, it's fascinating that you'd say that, Toby, because. If you look at our YouTube channel, and the, the number one type of comment that we get is... Is about my personal appearance. <laughs> that, that is true. That is actually true. Keep those coming, by the way. I'm enjoying it. But the second most common comment is, BBC Channel 4, take note. This is how you do an interview. I wish TV was like this. I wish more people did this. People are absolutely crying out for people to be having serious, genuine conversations, for hearing all sides... We're hearing an open conversation. You know, we get a lot of hate, by the way, for having centre-right figures on. We invite, we've invited Owen Jones on. We've invited people, James O'Brien, people from the left, people from the Akala. social justice. Akala, we'd love to have on. But the problem that I think we have now is the far left is becoming culturally hegemonic mm-hmm. in our debate, in our conversation. And so those people don't need to come on a renegade YouTube show. Mm-hmm. Because they can go on the mainstream mm-hmm. media every day of the week mm-hmm. and talk there and not be interrupted every mm-hmm. three seconds and not be character assassinated. And I think that's, that's where what we're doing here is, is getting the purchase that it's getting because there is no way to have genuine conversation now on television. It just doesn't happen. It's all Kathy Newman-esque. Mm-hmm. Uh, and all you see is someone being interrupted every three seconds and you can't have a conversation like that. Mm-hmm. You know? And one of the things we find as well is when we talk to somebody for a long time, if there are flaws in their thinking, if there are flaws in their logic, we don't need to batter them into submission for that to be shown up. Mm-hmm. We just need to let them talk and ask probing questions as we have done. Mm-hmm. And those flaws will expose themselves without anybody being insulted or offended or, or mm-hmm. anything like mm-hmm. that. So we're very grateful for you coming on. And I think, I think that's where the future is, and I hope that's where it is. But let me, let me ask you one final question, uh, or two final questions. Um, you, you told us you're a classical liberal. For for a British audience who may be le- or who, people who don't watch Dave Rubin as we do, uh, what is a classical liberal, and what is your elevator pitch to people who may not yet be classical liberals to, to join that cause? Okay, I think uh, a classical liberal um, is someone who believes in um, uh, natural rights. Um, they believe that um, insofar as the state enjoys certain powers, it's because those powers have been granted to the state. Uh, by the people, um, and uh, and they can be taken back. Um, so the kind of er text for classical liberals is probably uh, John Locke's Second Treatise of Government, in which he describes um, the state of nature and how rights get transferred from um, uh, people in the state of nature to uh, the state. Um, but we also believe in limited government, um, low taxation. Um, freedom of speech, um, religious tolerance. Uh, we also believe in progress, uh, that actually things are getting better. Um, 
across the world, and in particular since the creation of uh, free market capitalism, um, uh, things have been on a really steep upward improvement curve, uh, not just in the West, but in the developing world too. Oh, well, you really are a Nazi. <laughs> okay. Uh, listen, the, the last question we always like to ask our guests is, what do you think is the one thing that none of us are talking about that we really should be talking about? Um, well, one thing that slightly troubled me is um, the way in which um, uh, people on the centre-right and the right um, have been using the shaming tactics of people on the left to go after people on the left. Um, so, for instance, uh, James Gunn, um, the director of Guardians of the Galaxy, Volumes 1 and 2, and who was also directing Volume 3, was recently fired by Disney um, because various inappropriate things he had said on Twitter. I mean, quite a few things. And, you know, even if I say so myself, a lot worse than the things I had said. But nonetheless, you know, mm -hmm. things he'd said, for the most part, quite late at night on Twitter, in which he was trying to kind of play the role of an edgelord and kind of uh, 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 and tell kind of risky, off-colour jokes. Uh, I mean, very risky and off-colour in his case. Um, but 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 he, those tweets were identified by people on the right, and they thought he was fair game because he has opposed Trump and he has demanded that people like. Um, uh, or various directors who he thinks has sexually harassed women should be fired. So he's sort of joined outrage mobs before. Um, he's not quite a witch-finder general, but he's certainly kind of, you know, he's, he's complicit. Um, so they thought, fair game. Um, but I, 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 it, seems to be, it seems to be just becoming generally accepted on kind of my side of the divide that, you know, it's okay to deploy those tactics against people on the left. And the rationale is... If we apply those tactics to them, then they're going to stop applying them to us in due course because they're going to realise that, you know, if we play that game, we'll lose as much as we gain. Um, I think that, 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 that should, we should pause and think very carefully before embracing those tactics. And, of course, I would say that because I've actually been through it and I realise how unpleasant uh, and unfair uh, being judged in that way is. But I also think, you know, that the, the, the correct response um, to uh, this phenomenon uh, is not to just uh, is to, to say, yeah, people on the left are equally guilty and here's why, but to say, actually, people shouldn't be judged according to lapses of judgment, stupid things they've said in the middle of the night after several glasses of wine, you should take them in the round and see what they're like as human beings over the course of their lives and not just try and skewer them uh, according to their worst possible moments. Um, uh, and, and if we do engage in the same tactics, I think we surrender any principle we have over um, trying to defenestrate people on that basis. Um, and uh, I also think that we don't need to engage in those tactics because the left, if left to their own devices, will turn those tactics on themselves. I mean, you see it over and over again. Mary Beard, for instance, who is a kind of dyed-in-the-wool lefty, um, has been several times kind of targeted by Twitchfork mobs for kind of uh, being insufficiently woke uh, in various comments she made about the Oxfam scandal, for instance. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the left is constantly going after 
its own. You know, there's the old phrase, um, the right looks for allies, the left looks for traitors. I mean, not always true, but broadly true. So we don't have to engage in those tactics ourselves in order to eventually make sure that this kind of public shaming uh, stops because they will turn those tactics on themselves and in due course realise that uh, that is no way to behave. Toby, that was uh, amazing. Thank you very, very much. Um, before we go, is there anything you'd like to promote? Your Twitter or have you got articles or books or whatever, or whatever um, it might be? I think uh, the thing I'd uh, like to promote um, is Quillette um, for... Um, viewers, listeners who haven't yet discovered Quillette. Um, it is this um, online Australian magazine started by um, a former Australian grad student um, called Claire Lehman. Yeah, we're really hoping you're going to come on, Claire. I know you <laughs> said you would. Next time you're in London, we're waiting for you. And it was, um, it was singled out in uh, Barry Weiss's piece about the intellectual dark web in the New York Times magazine. Uh, a couple months ago, um, as ground zero of the intellectual dark web. I mean, it has articles by academics, intellectuals, journalists. Comedians, I've written an Comedians, you've written for them, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it, it, the, the level of debate um, in, in Quillette is incredibly high. The mm. standard of argument, uh, of evidence, uh, is incredibly high. It's all informed by kind of uh, mainstream science. Uh, it's a scientifically literate uh, publication. I mean, it's an extraordinary breath of fresh air. It's like a kind of beacon of light in the kind of darkling plain. Um, and I've recently become an associate editor there, um, and I'm very proud to be associated with it, and I've written some things for it too. My piece about being pub publicly shamed six months ago mm. appeared in Quillette last week. I called it the public humiliation diet, because one of the things that happens when you're publicly shamed is you just, without seeming to help it, you just shed pounds. Um, I need to get publicly <laughs> shamed. <laughs> oh, that's coming, mate. Yeah, that's, that's coming. coming. <laughs> I'm, yeah, I've joined the gym. What's the point in that? You won't have to wait long. Just, yeah. talk, just, just talk to a few more Nazis. That's all you need. Yeah, yeah. And we'll be called Nazis. And I'll have rock strong. hard abs. Yeah. Right. <laughs> You'll have Nazi abs. Nazi <laughs> abs, mate, yeah. <laughs> that's where it's at. Because they all look good in uniform. Right. Well, well done for plugging Quillette, but you are on Twitter at... Uh, Toadmeister. 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 Check out some of Toby's articles. He's a great writer. Thank you very much for tuning in. Do subscribe to our YouTube channel, and if you've already subscribed to our YouTube channel, make sure you click that bell next to the subscribe button to make sure that you get notified every put time we put out a fantastic video like this. We'll be back next week. Thank you very much for tuning in, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Before you go, consider joining our exclusive member feed. As a member, you'll get ad-free and extended interviews. Click the membership link in the podcast description or find the exclusive episodes link on your podcast listening app to join us.